In Hebrews chapter 12, when we pick it up at verse 18, let me just remind you briefly of what we saw before earlier in Hebrews chapter 12. What we saw before was this idea of how the apostle, uh, the apostle writing to the Hebrews closed it there in the last few verses, 15, 16, 17, with this idea of holiness and how it's very important for us to be holy before the Lord. It's so important that he said that we should pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, the idea of that idea of holiness was illustrated by Esau. Actually, he was illustrating the opposite of holiness. Someone who didn't regard the things of God as something sacred and precious, but instead he traded away his birthright, which was something holy, and regarded it as something as profane. Now, it's very easy to misunderstand holiness And it's very easy to misunderstand what will cultivate and build holiness in our lives. So I want you to keep that thought in mind as we understand now, beginning at verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 12. Ready? For you have not come to the mountain which that may be touched with fire and that burn with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. In the midst of speaking about holiness, the writer of the Hebrews brings before our mind, he presents before us this image of Mount Sinai in the desert when the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai after coming out of Egypt in their Exodus wanderings. This illustration or this picture is given to us in Exodus chapter 19, most specifically verses 10 through 25. And since the book previous to Hebrews that we went to together was Exodus, it wasn't all that many months ago that we were taking a look at that text together here on a Sunday morning. And what we saw was that when Israel... A nation numbering, uh, perhaps in the millions, came down to the foot of Mount Sinai that it was an awesome experience. And when I mean awesome, I mean full of awe. First of all, God commanded that the mountain be fenced off and that there be no trespassing on pain of death. There was a fence around Mount Sinai separating the people from the presence of God up on the mountain. And then... The people were commanded to wash their clothes and even to abstain from sexual relations one with another just so that they could establish a pattern that there was something unique. There was something particularly holy going to happen up on that mountain. And then when God began to manifest his presence up on Mount Sinai, the biblical record tells us that there was thunder, that there was lightning, that there was smoke and fire upon the mountain. And all of this built in tension until they could hear the sound of a trumpet sounding. And friends, let me tell you, it was no man blowing a shofar or a ram's horn or a trumpet. I don't know if it was an angel. I don't know if it was the Lord himself. I don't know if God was just creating the sound of a trumpet in the air, which he was fully capable of doing. But that trumpet was no earthly trumpet. They heard a sound from heaven. 
And as that trumpet blast blew and sounded longer and longer, there was more smoke. It looked like a furnace and more earthquakes. And that trumpet sounded long until Moses spoke and God himself answered from heaven. And then God spoke the Ten Commandments to Israel, speaking from heaven and audibly multitudes and multitudes of people on earth heard it. Now, friends, that's an awesome experience, don't you think? Now, this is what I want you to understand. Look at the first few words of verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire. This is not the mountain we have come to. We haven't come to Mount Sinai. You see, notice this in verse 19. He said that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. You and I might think that to have this kind of experience, it would be the best day of my life. I couldn't believe it. There I was at the foot of Mount Sinai and I saw the smoke and I felt the earthquake and I could smell the fire and I heard the voice of God with my own ears. And you and I might think, oh, that would be the greatest day of my life. Well, if it was so great, how come the children of Israel begged that it would be stopped? If it was so great, check this out in verse 19, that even Moses was afraid. I'm sorry, verse 21, where it says, Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. That's recorded from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 19. Now, friends, I could understand why some lowly Israelite might be terrified at Mount Sinai. But Moses, there's a man of God. There's a man who knew what it was to commune with God. And if even Moses himself was terrified... Can you appreciate what a terrifying experience it must have been for the people of Israel to see God at Mount Sinai? Now, what does this have to do with holiness? All Israel had this amazing experience with God at Sinai. But was it effective in making them live holy lives before the Lord? No, emphatically no. It wasn't more than 30 or so days after this experience that they were dancing around a golden calf saying, this is the God that brought us up out of Egypt. Basically having a drunken orgy around an idol. Does that sound like holiness to you? No. Friends, there are many people who think that the way for you or I, but since the one I'm speaking and you're the one listening, I'll just say you, even though I mean it for myself too, But there are many people who think that the real way for you to be holy is for someone like me to try to scare you into holiness. If I scare you enough, if I scare you enough about the consequences, if I scare you enough about the immediate consequences or the ultimate consequences, if I can create enough fear in you by my presentation of a sermon or whatever, ooh, then that'll keep you holy. Can you understand that that doesn't work? You're not going to be scared into holiness, but you can be loved into holiness. Because the whole point there, look at it there in verse 18. You have not come to the mountain which has burned, or excuse me, that may be touched and that burned with fire. Look at the mountain that you have come to. Ready? This is the mountain that we do come to in Jesus Christ. And of course, he's speaking symbolically with pictures here. But look at this, verse 22. 
But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. That's the mountain we come to in Jesus Christ. And here's the contrast before it. You can have Sinai or you can have Zion. Which mountain do you want to live your Christian life at? May I make a modest recommendation? Zion is way better. Live your Christian life with a Mount Zion mentality instead of a Mount Sinai mentality. I mean, look how superior it is. He says there in verse 22, You have come to Mount Zion. We're in a different place. Our relationship with God is not modeled after Israel's experience with God at Mount Sinai, where God pretty much scared them, but it didn't result in holiness. No, we come to God's other mountain. We come to Mount Zion, the name of the hill upon which Jerusalem sits. The law came by Mount Sinai. The finished work of Jesus Christ and all the grace and love that's attached to that comes to Mount Zion. Do you see the contrast between the two? And if you don't see the contrast between the two, the following verses, verses 22 and following, explain the contrast in such vivid terms. I'm just going to sort of walk our way through verse 22, 23, and 24, and let's take a look at some of these contrasts. Ready? First of all, he says, you've come to the city of the living God. I want you to think about Mount Sinai just for a moment. Sinai in the desert. Was there any city there? No, it's out in the middle of the desert. There's no life. There's no prosperity. There's no entrepreneurial community. There's no all the things that in the best sense mark a good city. No, we have not come to a desolate desert. We have come, verse 22, to the city of the living God. Verse 22 also says we've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Sinai was associated with Egypt. That's where it is closer to geographically. No, but if you want an association with Jerusalem, it is the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the connection. Verse 22 also says that we've come to an innumerable company of angels. Both by specific uh, declaration in Hebrews, but also by uh, Hebrew tradition. We understand that the law was delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai by a few angels. And it's like this. Yeah, Sinai has a few angels. Big deal. What does Mount Zion have? An innumerable company of angels. Take that, Mount Sinai. We've got way more angels than you ever had. Verse 23 to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. See, I know that there were a lot of people gathered at the bottom of Mount Sinai when Israel came out of Egypt. I know that. There have been estimates as many as 3 million people. I don't know if it was exactly that many, but there's estimates that it could have been as many as 3 million Israelites came out of Egypt and were gathered together there at the base of Mount Sinai. And that's a lot of people, don't you think? But let me tell you, there's an even bigger crowd at Mount Zion. Because Mount Zion doesn't just include the Jewish people who came out of Egypt. Mount Zion includes this. Well, look at the way he phrases it in verse 23 to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. 
You, you have this great company of the redeemed and you have God's church that he's working out in his special plan of the ages. And you have them all gathered together in this glorious group of all of God's redeemed people. And then verse 24 says that we also come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Now, Mount Sinai had a covenant, but it's the old covenant. Mount Sinai had a mediator, but it was Moses. But what do we have in Jesus We have him bringing in a new covenant, and he's a much greater mediator. Mount Zion is better. And then finally, he says there in verse 24, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. Now, there's two ways that we can consider the blood of Abel on this point. One, it could be the blood of sacrifice that Abel brought. Do you remember Abel? Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, who brought a sacrifice to the Lord. And tragically, his brother Cain killed him. Abel's sacrifice was from the flock. It was a blood sacrifice. You could say this, that as far as the biblical record is concerned, Abel was the first one to bring a blood sacrifice to God. The first man to bring such a blood sacrifice. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Every animal sacrifice that had happened after the time of Abel up until the time of Jesus, that was just a repetition of an animal sacrifice. And the blood of Jesus on the cross speaks of such a greater thing than the blood of any animal sacrifice. That could be the contrast. The blood of animal sacrifice typified by Abel or the blood of Jesus's perfect sacrifice. That's one aspect. But I want you to think about another thing. He might be talking about the blood That was in Abel's own veins. Why? Because his blood was shed as a martyr by his brother Cain. Now, Jesus's blood was shed as well on the cross. And you say, well, how come Jesus's blood is so much greater than the blood of Abel? I'll tell you, I want you to think about it along these terms. The blood of Abel cries out, justice must be satisfied. Bring vengeance. There's a crime that's been committed. It must be answered for. That's what the blood of Abel cries out. But don't you think that the blood of Jesus says something far better? Do you understand what the blood of Jesus on the cross says? It says this. Justice has been satisfied. Bring mercy. The justice of God was satisfied in the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross. Friends, I hope you believe that. That's the whole foundation for what we believe together. That Jesus, in who he was and what he did for us on the cross, did something that was so unique and so powerful that the justice of God, which is rightfully set against us when we're in disobedience and sinners against him, it was satisfied in Jesus. And therefore, for those who embrace Jesus Christ and have his sacrifice cover their lives, it is satisfied on their behalf. Now you can see why the blood of Jesus speaks so much more powerfully and eloquently and so much better than the blood of Abel. Where does this leave us? Again, go back to verse 22. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion. The lesson is plain. Don't come to Mount Zion as if you were coming to Mount Sinai. Put away your hesitation. Come boldly to God and realize that if you're ever going to have holiness in your life, it's not going to come from living a Mount Sinai kind of life. Holiness in your life is going to come from living a Mount Zion kind of life. Do you see the contrast? Friends, what God has for you in Jesus Christ is typified 
by Mount Zion and all the good things associated with it. But I'll tell you something that I've seen. I've seen it, of course, in experience in my own life, but I've also seen it as a pastor dealing with the lives of many people. I see many believers who love Jesus, but for some reason, they seem to set their tent. They seem to live their life at Mount Sinai instead of Zion. They think that the principle of law dominating their life is going to be what sees them through or sees other people through to holiness. They think that the principle of law dominating their life is what's going to really draw them close to God. And friends, that's all about Sinai. Now, we appreciate Mount Sinai. There are things that we learn at Mount Sinai. There are things we appreciate about what God did for us and declared about himself at Mount Sinai, but we don't live there. We live at Mount Zion in full recognition of Jesus and the work he did for us and not the law. Do you see the contrast that he builds? It's a powerful contrast. And before I move on to verse 25, all I can do is exhort you and just encourage you. Friends, if your Christian life is mainly defined by a bunch of rules that you have to keep, Look up and you might be living in the shadow of Mount Sinai. Your Christian life should not be fundamentally defined by rules that you must keep. No, it should be fundamentally defined by Jesus Christ himself and the great work that he did for you on the cross. And do you want to know what you find? There is far more holiness of living at Zion than there ever was at Sinai. Matter of fact, when people have a particularly lawless attitude when that principle of rebellion is particularly excited in them. It's probably evidence that their experience of life is much more marked by Sinai than it is by Zion. And so do you see this beautiful, beautiful picture that he draws for us? He sets before us two mountains and the writer of the Hebrews basically says, what's it going to be? Where are you going to live? Where are you going to have your mentality? It makes all the difference in the world. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are, to use some biblical terminology, if you are born again by God's spirit, then friends, you were born at Zion. You were not born at Sinai. There is no birth at Sinai. There's only the law coming down, but there's new birth at Zion. You were born at Zion. Now live your life at Zion instead of Sinai. Now, He gives us this picture very straightforwardly, but he speaks in just a straightforward way at verse 25. Take a look at this. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now, friends, notice that phrase in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. You see, just as we described in the previous verses, God holds the goodness and God holds the glory of Mount Zion right there before us. He holds before us the perfect and the finished work of Jesus Christ and the new covenant that's accomplished through him. If you refuse that new covenant, if you choose to return to Mount Sinai, don't pretend that there's not consequences. 
There are consequences. Look at verse 25. It says they did not escape. There were consequences for rebelling at Moses' Mount Sinai. And there are and there should be even greater consequences for resisting God's greater work at Mount Zion. Notice this. He draws a contrast here in verse 26 where he says, whose voice then shook the earth. We all get it, don't we? That when God spoke at Mount Sinai, he shook the earth with his voice. Fortunately, living here in California, everybody can relate to that. You know what it's like to live in an earthquake, don't you? Do you know what it's like to live in a scary earthquake? Because we know in California, there's kind of enjoyable earthquakes. You go, oh, look, feel that. Wow. And you just go, oh, that's curious. Wow, I wonder where that is. You think about the epicenter. It's almost a little entertaining kind of thing. You think, oh, look, the light fixture swaying a little bit. Isn't that exciting? And this and that. And then there's the scary earthquake, isn't there? There's nothing fun about the scary earthquake. The scary earthquake is, or at least can be, terrifying. Now, we're all used to the idea that at Mount Sinai, I'll just read the verse to you again, whose voice then shook the earth. The earth shook at Mount Sinai. Well, is God done shaking then? No, look at it there as it continues on in verse 26. God says, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. At Mount Sinai, God shook the earth with his voice. But the new covenant shakes things up even more, not only on earth but even to the heavens. When he says heaven there, he doesn't mean the heaven where God lives. He means heaven in the sense of the sky or the atmosphere. He's just talking about the whole universe. In other words, the new covenant, God promises not to stop the shaking, but to shake it even more. Now, do you understand that? Friends, it's easy. And I would say it's even dangerous To think along these lines, to think that God was severe, maybe even mean in the Old Testament. And somehow he became nice in the New Testament. Do you ever find that way of thinking? It's very common on people who don't know much about the Bible. But honestly, let's be very straightforward. It's common even within these walls for people to think that way. The mean, old, severe God in the Old Testament. And somehow in the New Testament, you have Jesus and he's patting children on the hair and skipping through fields full of daisies. That's Jesus. Now, friends, let me tell you what's wrong with that kind of thinking. There's many things wrong, but I'll tell you one of the reasons why it's so dangerous. It's so simplistic as to be deceiving because there is more mercy in the Old Testament than most people ever imagined. If you look for it and just keep your eyes open for it, you will find more mercy in the Old Testament than most people ever think they'll see. And then there's the flip side. There is more severity and might I even say judgment in the New Testament than most people immediately think. I know it's a serious thing. It's a serious thing for a preacher to stand before people and to talk about hell. There are many people who wish to avoid it. Oh, no, you can't speak about hell to a modern audience. Come on, aren't we much more sophisticated than that? Don't we know so much better? Don't we just understand that some people have misery on this earth and it's just hell on earth? And this idea of hell being actually an eternal destination for some people. Well, you can't talk to people about that. They'll just think you're scaring them. They'll just think you're manipulating. You can't talk about that. Friends, let me just give you the truth here. 
Jesus Christ spoke more about hell than anybody else in the Bible by a long shot. Jesus, the nice one. And let me say, he spoke about hell because he is love. He is nice. He spoke about hell because he desperately, desperately doesn't want people to go there. And he wants them to choose Zion and the work that Jesus himself did for them to redeem them from the terrors of hell, to rescue them from that painful destination. And so we need to be real about this. There's much more mercy in the Old Testament than most people imagine. And there's more judgment in the new than many people recognize. But when everything is said and done, here's the question. God is going to shake things. And the only fair question is this. Where are you standing when God shakes things? Isn't that the truth? You know it from your earthquake experience. How would you like to be standing right next to a tall brick wall that's unreinforced in an earthquake? You think, I would hate to be there. That wall is going to fall down on top of me. It's not the earthquake I'm so much worried about. It's where I'm standing. Instead, if you were standing in a safe, secure place, at that moment, the earthquake doesn't trouble you that much because you know you're okay. Friends, shaking will come to your life. It'll come to my life as well. Things shake. Jesus never promised you a life that doesn't shake. And right now, for some of you, you're feeling it in an intense way. Things are shaking all around you. You once thought that the career was very safe and secure, and now it's shaking. You once thought that those family relationships that drew so much strength to you and you just had so much confidence in them, now they're shaking. The, the things that you knew in your social circle, the things you knew just in your health, the things you knew maybe just with the advancing years, there are things shaking in your life right now. And listen, God allows things to be shaken in our life. So that's what, we, what is really founded upon him will stand and everything else will fall away. Look, this is the thought he has in verse 27. He says, now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made. The things which cannot be shaken may remain. God will allow shaking to come into our life so that those things that are really founded on the rock, the things that are really secure upon Jesus, those things will stand. So do you need to see what you got to do? That career that you have, you better make sure that it's founded on Jesus Christ. Those family relationships that you treasure so much, and God bless you for treasuring those family relationships. You better make sure they're founded on Jesus Christ. All those other things, the social things, the things to do with your body, your soul, your spirit, every aspect of your being founded on Jesus Christ, it will be able to resist the shaking that will inevitably come. Because God did not promise less shaking under the new covenant, only a stronger foundation in those seasons of shaking. Let's look now, verses 28 and 29, and we'll finish with this. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Friends, look at that in verse 28. It's so striking. Yes, everything's going to be shaken, but we are receiving a kingdom which cannot 
be shaken. In contrast to all the instability of the world around us, the kingdom of Jesus cannot be shaken and we are receiving that kingdom. Oh, we haven't received it in its totality. There will come the day when Jesus Christ rules and reigns over this earth in perfect glory, in perfect wisdom, in perfect administration. But there's a sense in which we are receiving it right now in the here and now. I like what one commentator named Griffith Thomas said about this. He said that the ancient grammar and phrasing indicates, quote, that we are constantly and perpetually receiving a kingdom that is incapable of being shaken. Oh, yes, it's in fulfillment one day in that beautiful millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we look forward to that and believe it. Yet, nevertheless, right now, we have the promise of God's kingdom. We have the principle of God's kingdom. We see evidence of the power of God's kingdom. We have some of the provision of God's kingdom. And we see kingdom community all around us. No, we are not left without any pictures, any aspects, any delivery of some aspects of the kingdom right here, right now. And since we have it among us, at least in some measure, we realize that it cannot be shaken. And therefore, look at it there in verse 28. Let us have grace. Now, friends, the kingdom itself will never be shaken. So we must seize God's unmerited approval in Jesus. And it'll help us to serve God acceptably. This is what we want to do. We want to receive the grace of God that we may serve God acceptably. Now, little quiz. You don't have to respond vocally, just in your mind. Would grace be more associated with Sinai or with Zion? Everybody answered that correctly, didn't they? Grace is all about Zion. Law is all about Sinai. And what does he say? You've come to Zion. So take the grace of God, receive the grace of God, and then you will be able to serve God acceptably. You'll serve God knowing that he's given you aspects of his kingdom right now. And it'll be the work of God's grace in you. Now, notice the way he closes out the chapter. For our God is a consuming fire. I've heard that verse quoted in a way that frightens people. You better watch out, mister. Our God's a consuming fire. And look, I suppose there's some truth to that. Don't some people need to be shaken up with that sometimes? But I just want you to consider for a moment, does anybody think that the consuming fire is drawing us back to Mount Sinai? After all, Mount Sinai was all about this fire burning upon it and smoke and earthquake and thunder and all the rest of it. When he says our God is a consuming fire, do you think he's trying to draw us back to Sinai? I don't think so. Let me explain to you why. Because there was a fire on Mount Sinai. There's no denying it. And it frightened the people. But do you realize that God's consuming fire was also poured out upon Mount Zion? Because it was at Mount Zion, it was in Jerusalem that the Son of God himself was nailed to the cross and he received the consuming fire of God's judgment. And you could say that fire of God's judgment was, in fact, consumed in the sense of quenched in Jesus. He totally satisfied it. 
If I could put it this way, and I'm just using pictures, I'm just using images here, but I hope these images will be helpful for somebody here. Friends, you could say that the fire on Sinai still burns. It's not done burning. The law still burns. The law still says you fall short. You can't make it. It's law, law, law. That's the fire that still burns on Sinai. But come on over to Zion. Over on Mount Zion. Do you see what there is? There's the fire of God that has been poured out upon his son. And it has been quenched. And it has been satisfied. And so now we can come to God at Mount Zion. Knowing that the fire of God's judgment has been satisfied in the Son, Jesus Christ. I hope you've been persuaded. I hope you've been persuaded that it's time for you to take up your tent at Mount Sinai. It's time for you to ask yourself, why have I lived here so long? And to come back over to Zion And say, Lord, I want to live in the midst of your grace. I want to live in the midst of your promises. I want to live a Jesus-focused Christian life instead of a law-focused Christian life. Because you know what a law-focused Christian life is really all about? It's really a me-focus. Am I obeying? Am I keeping the rules? Have I dotted my I's? Have I crossed my T's? It's a me-focus. Sinai is marked by that. Zion says, Jesus, you are the focus, both now and forever. So friends, let's do this. My prayer is that everybody in this room would say, no, Lord, I want a Jesus-focused Christian life, not a me-focused Christian life. I'm going to live it at Zion and not Sinai. And for some of you, you've never been introduced to Jesus Today's your day. Now's your moment. I'm going to pray for us all in response for this. Jesus, that's my prayer. Lord, I pray that you would do a work of great holiness and of great obedience in us as a congregation. I pray that there would not be among us profane and fornicators as was described by Esau in the passage we looked at last week. But rather, Lord, I know that this path to holiness of life. It's not going to happen by having it scared into us at Mount Sinai. No, Lord, instead, we come to Zion. And I pray that you would persuade every heart to do so. Every heart to say, Lord, I was born in Zion. This is where I want to live. And focus my life on the King of Zion, Jesus Christ himself. Would you please do that, Lord? Do it amongst us. Father, I feel that my words fall so short of the glory of the truth that this passage reflects. Would you please do a work by your spirit above and beyond and around? the weakness of the words that I've spoken that do a marvelous work in the lives of those who are your people and those who may become your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.